We're back in the outside, which is a beautiful approach actually from the car park past an orchard and uh, up past a, a little sort of A-frame board up there with chalked inscriptions about things to do with the house. It's the start of actually what's a very lovely experience coming here. Mm. Uh, anyway, yeah, right. let's talk about the yeah. orchard. Yes, I let's talk about the orchard. Um, where we're standing now, um, Tessa mentions the alterations made by Downhouse School for Girls, and where we're standing now is one such alteration. The reason this here, this area here is largely flat is because Downhouse School for Girls, they built uh, a double height extension here, um, which then was uh, obviously demolished uh, prior to the opening uh, as a museum in 1929 because they wanted to be as faithful to the, how mm. the Darwins would have known it. Mm. What would have been here would have been a big mound of earth to protect from the north winds because they both agreed that the, 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 uh, the northerly winds were intolerable. Uh, and when they bought the property, the front door actually faced north, which wasn't ideal. Yeah. Now, these mounds that they created in the garden of this, where we're standing now, would have been one, were collected uh, from spoil from the road. And what they did was, uh, when Darwin moved here, he already had the reputation as a, uh, a celebrity scientist, um, even though he, that's the title he shunned away from. So what they did was they built a six-foot wall around the garden to stop people looking in but to make sure that people couldn't look in they lowered the road by two feet as well <laughs> and so they, they used that spoil to create what limited landscaping uh, we'll see in the gardens um, yep we're here uh, at the orchard and I always say that the orchard is a metaphor for the rest of the garden because the orchard like the rest of the garden um, is a recreation um, from uh, when the Darwins lived here and how do we know what sort of varieties they had and where they were planted etc uh, etc et well he was a meticulous note taker so um, not only was he a meticulous letter writer to which we have in excess of 15,000 or something uh, uh, letters that uh, Darwin has written um, but he was a meticulous note taker and so we know the varieties of apples pears and sloes that were growing here and in what orientation and order they were to the house and so what we've done is we've gone and sourced those varieties from heritage fruit companies and planted them but occasionally um, or more commonly than we would like to admit, uh, some varieties become extinct for whatever reason. So if there have been varieties that we couldn't source, we have substituted them with a period correct variety. And the garden forms the physical setting for what we refer to as Charles Darwin's living landscape laboratory, because he used this as the place where he would test his ideas. One of the biggest criticisms that people levied against him in 1859 was that the book was too small and uh, it, it was and indeed it had been a rush to publication because he was working on something called his big book but then he used this garden for the rest of his career thoroughly testing his ideas so everything he published after that whether it was on uh, pigeons whether it was on breeding uh, uh, whether it was on um, different forms of flowers or climbing plants, orchids, insectivorous plants, these all might seem on the surface disparate, unconnected subjects, but they all had natural selection at the centre. It was his bigger argument that he spent his career doing. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one thing I really love about this place, and this is a credit to both of you, is that we're literally standing in a place which Darwin would recognise a significant amount of. 
Yeah, he would be very proud to come up here and find that uh, somebody had got rid of the extension that had been put <laughs> afterwards. You know, uh, where's my ma- earth mound gone? The north wind's a bit fierce, but other than that, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Probably quite like central heating as well. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, or a working toilet. <laughs> yes. you know, of course, they didn't have, it was just uh, the maid would go and do the, the bedpan um, in the mornings and, and take the night soils out to wherever they took them to. Uh, there's no such thing as plumbing in those days. No. So that's it's probably a different the, uh, world. Yeah. That would be the best fertilised part of the garden. Well, I, I, there are a few parts of the estate where the, the weeds grow particularly vigorously, <laughs> so I do have a theory. <laughs> <laughs> right, would you like to show us another area? Let's go to the main lawn. Thank you. Um, oh, this is such a nice place. I really loved it here last time. That's where we sat. I can literally feel my well-being going, wee! Yeah. <laughs> you get off the gravel so I'm not crunching all over. Mm. So we are uh, in the garden and uh, next to an original sundial. Tell us more. That's right. So we are now standing next to the sundial, the back of the property, and we're in front of a glass-covered veranda. And this was built fairly late on. It was in the 1870s when it was built. And this would have been the sort of centre of family life. It meant that the, they could extend the indoors-outdoors, which is a, we think of it as a modern concept today, but it was going around back then, if you, if, of course, if you had the money. And you can see it's framed at the moment by these beautiful Virginia creepers, which are going crimson uh, oh, due to the gorgeous. time of the year. Stunning colours, really. Absolutely. So I mentioned at the beginning um, of coming out into the garden that it, the garden is a recreation but of course some of the trees would have been original so um, we're looking now straight ahead at a magnificent uh, Spanish chestnut um, very very old tree must be at least back to the Darwins if not pre-Darwinian um, bearing in mind the original property was Georgian so it would have been built in the mid 18th century and the mulberry over there was already existing uh, when they they bought the original property so that's dated at approximately 300 years years old um, the top of it's looking rather sad um, and that's um, due to um, a new pest it's, it's a little green invader known as the ring-necked parakeet oh then but I do often mm. think what would Charles Darwin have made of it because this is natural selection in action, mm. in action. yeah absolutely is it white mulberry or this is the black mulberry, and they no, they the white mulberry. Um, they were black mulberries were widely planted in the Georgian period because there was a notion at one point that we were going to compete with the um, the Oriental um, silk trade. Um, un- unfortunately, we'd planted all the wrong varieties, um, and so uh, yes, I've uh, got one in my local. So I, I live near Lesnes Abbey, right, and uh, they've got a mulberry tree there that James the first brought in because he wanted to feed his silkworms and he yeah. too got the wrong one yeah um, and we've got it we still have this tree and it's I'll show you a picture later it's stunning they are beautiful um, trees. and it's it's I mean it's obviously so old but uh, some little oik took a saw to it and actually tried to saw one of the branches no. off. but anyway the gardeners have managed to salvage it and they've sort of propped it up with a uh, metal staunch and thing yes. uh, and it's still it's still surviving it's doing really well if you can resist propping them up 
please do so and let them spread because being a member of the fig family they are naturally very spreading trees mm. and quite often what they'll do is they'll just put a bow down a limb an elbow and where that limb touches the ground it will root and just like the tropical banyans oh. um, which walk with aerial roots these trees do that as well so oh, wow. i have a personal theory um, back in darwin's time the children used to climb out of the schoolroom down through the branches into the garden and the tree where it is now is it's stretching it to think that they could do that now and i think that's because the tree has literally walked to a new position and in actual fact if you look at the tree you can see it is walking in that direction yeah, I was say, it almost looks a little bit upside down yes so yeah <laughs> if in doubt let mulberries walk don't prop them thank you you've just given me the best argument for uh, interviewing more landscape gardeners i can ever think of <laughs> yeah absolutely Brilliant. and another little bit of trivia as well is that um uh Buckingham Palace came into uh, being because it was built on the site of a failed mulberry orchard and the, the land was going extremely cheaply. And, and uh, the significance of that is the natural, the natural collection of mulberries uh, in the grounds of Buckingham Palace. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm, yeah, that's absolutely stunning. Sarah shows picture. <laughs> yes, yeah, Sarah shows picture. Beautiful tree. My mulberry, as I mm. call it, because, you know, Lesnes Abbey, everybody knows that it's mine. So we're looking now to the... Um, uh, to the north and we can see the bank that I described which had been removed when we first went into the garden mm -hmm. and um, that would have been part of the landscaping so there's that bank there there's a bank straight ahead of us planted with evergreen shrubs and uh, evergreen rhododendrons and deciduous azaleas and that was to protect and enclose the garden and it does give the garden a very very sort of enclosed intimate feel but then you've got these beautiful views, these bucolic views into the landscape beyond, and you can see the farmer has been busy at work and uh, we're just waiting to have our hay bales uh, removed. Um, yes, we are in the London borough of Bromley, but we are London in name only. Um, you come out here and you're completely rural. I mean, as far as the eye can see, it's just, it's just countryside, which is really, really beautiful. Um, and so all of the things that attracted the Darwins here in the first place, they still stand true today. Um, and it's hard to believe that you can actually get here on your Oyster card or on, on contactless. So, yeah, I, I always say that we are um, London's best kept secret. Mm. Um, quite often um, when I've been speaking, we, we, we do the Lambeth Country Show um, and, and that's based in Brixton and uh, in Brockwell Park. And when I say, you know, you've heard of Charles Darwin and people say, oh, of course I've heard of Charles Darwin. I said, well, did you know he spent his entire life, uh, adult life, living in the London borough of Bromley? And people are just completely blown away by it. There are even people in Orpington and Bromley who don't know about him. Um, and it's slightly ironic because we've got these amazing international visitors that come from all over the world. Some of them will come from, you know, I don't know, Chile, Japan, Argentina, uh, America, and they'll have tattoos on their bodies. It's, oh, this is the line drawing from page so-and-so of, of uh, The Power of Movement in Plants and they'll have a plant, uh, a, a line drawing, um, and um, they'll say, we've saved up you know, my entire life to come here, it's like a dream, and yet people in London people don't know we're here. But the, that's the thing about Bromley, it does have these hidden gems. It's got the Bethlehem Museum and the Bethlehem Art Gallery, mm -hmm. uh, you know, based on the thousand odd years, years history of mental health. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got the Chislehurst Caves, where Jimi Hendrix and uh, uh, the Who and others performed. Same thing with the Bromley Court Hotel and the, the Bromwell Club. Uh, and we're going to be going down into Chislehurst Caves. Um, you know, uh, 
a, a place which had a wartime hospital in it and yeah you know, Bromley is full of these things there's actually in Penge leading in the world uh, murals mm. tucked away and displayable only on certain occasions in the Sainsbury's car park wow. it's an amazing place is Bromley and this is one of the most amazing parts of it anything we can do to share it we're really happy about yeah. thank you I like to think we're a little gem in the crown Mm. Absolutely. What are these orange plants? So we're, we're now, um, we're looking with our, we've got our backs to the veranda and the main house and we're looking now onto the ornamental beds and um, where at all possible we try to root everything that we do horticulturally in the accepted history. Mm. We might, um, there might be, a, might be a bit of artistic license within that history, for example, um, this is Cannavaricii, um, and it's uh, a, a subtropical uh, perennial from India. Darwin did grow this. We know he grew this species because he writes about it in The Power of Movement in Plants. We don't necessarily know that he grew them in these beds, so there's a lot of reading between the lines. I would suggest it's highly unlikely that the beds would have been laid out like this. Um, we look at the photographs and the beds at the time how would you say tessa they're a little bit slapdash you've, you've given them greater order yes so <laughs> um, and that sort of that my point being is that um we try as a charity we have to um give something to the public mm. and so what we've taken this as an opportunity to show how victorian horticulture changed between 1842 when they moved here and what you're seeing here is early victorian horticulture but when you walk through the garden, you see the real style of the garden. And that's really sort of, um, it's very wild. Uh, you would say it's Robinsonian in style. And, um, and we know that Charles Darwin was corresponding with the very famous horticulturist, William Robinson. And we know that they subscribed to his magazine. And in his magazine, uh, he laid out all of his ideas about wild gardening. And so you'll see that wild style as we walk through. And as we walk through, we'll be looking at various Darwin experiments as well. Because mm. this was his living landscape laboratory. Mm. Right, shall we Gosh. walk through? We're now standing sort of almost in the middle of the back lawn, um, on the other side of those huge bay windows, um, which is where the dining room is, and that beautiful um, uh, Wedgwood um, service that we were discussing. And outside, um, on the lawn, is a rather shaggy patch of grass. Um, and this we call the lawn plot or the lawn experiment and this is one of the very very first ecological studies ever done sorry it's not you <laughs> and this is one of the, the, the very first ecological studies ever done and what Darwin was looking at he was looking at how plant communities changed over time so this was here for three years so in the first year he counted the number of different types of plant and it, he never cut it he cut the rest of the lawn but he never cut this and in the second year he counted the number and then he did the same in the third year but never cutting and so he described this process called choking where the dominant more aggressive plants were out competing the, the so-called weaker ones and he concluded that in the absence of grazing the coarser plants uh, out competed and you had a, 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 dec a decrease in biodiversity and so he was making the connections between plants and animals and how it's not a two-dimensional thing, it's three-dimensional. And, and so this was one of the really, really first and really important ecological surveys um, and shows the importance of, of, of how animals interact with the environment. 
It shows how much you can do in a very small area. And it's very typical of the experiments that you see. Um, they're quite naive, is a word I would use, and it's probably why mainstream science really shunned him initially, because there was, if you like, this snobbery associated with it. But it, it, it was the, the ideas behind it, the thinking behind it. So, you know, don't judge me by my methodology, judge me by what I'm thinking about, the thought process. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see that throughout the garden. The experiments do seem, in many ways, compared to uh, someone that was uh, traditionally scientifically taught, you can see it's, a lot of it's self-taught. The reason I've stopped here is this is another of Darwin's experiments. Um, Charles Darwin really bookends his career with geology, and geology was his first passion, or one of his first passions. And when he came to live here at Down House in 1842, he regarded himself as a geologist first and foremost. He'd published uh, very early on, before coming here, his theories about um, coral reefs and the work of very small um, animals uh, having a, a big effect uh, in the environment, and uh, bookend his career with a study of earthworms. One of his best-selling uh, books while he was alive, uh, The Formation of Vegetable Mould Through the Action of Earthworms. So, um, have you read it? Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but the theory behind it was genius, and we are actually talking about a genius. And so he was saying that if um, he, he basically took a stone, and it was probably something similar to a millstone. This is a recreation by his son Horace. Um, his son Horace had a... Um, uh, uh, scientific instrument company and um, he was uh, an equally brilliant scientist and he was knighted for it um, uh, for his contributions to his profession in fact three of the sons were um, this is a recreation of that experiment and Darwin placed a stone on the ground and was wanted to see how how much it sank over time and his argument was very simple and again we've talked about the simplicity and the sort of naiveness of his experiments but again it was that thinking behind it that worms are going to undermine the stone and then they they poop out the the soil on the on the, the surface of the soil like a, a, a as a worm cast mm -hmm. and then the more they would do that the stone would slowly disappear mm -hmm. and um, he was in no hurry to find out the results um, and in fact he, he never saw the results in his lifetime because his, I think his son was the one that measured it afterwards but again it was just an example of a, a brilliant mind at work. Mm. I love Sorry. it somebody's taking tea out there. <laughs> oh yes people have cream teas on the veranda it's all very civilized. We should have done that, totally should have done that. <laughs> we will be back. <laughs> So it's worth now uh, mentioning um, a very important figure um, in the garden, and that is Emma Darwin. Emma Darwin was um, overall in charge of what happened in the garden. So as a lady of means, um, she was the lady of the house, and it was her responsibility to organise the cooks and the nannies and the cleaners and the housekeepers, etc. And that included the gardening. So she was overseeing the day-to-day -day running of the estate. So all of the gardening style you see is refle a reflection of what she was doing. And um, she came from very good horticultural stock because her uncle founded what was to become the Royal Horticultural Society. Now, when she was a child, she had a nickname of Little Miss Slipslop because of her sort of slapdash, sloppy nature and approach to things generally. And you'll see that this is reflected in the planting, which is very, very informal. I mean, now, 
charming as it is, it's going into its muted autumnal tones. Um, but the great beauty of this garden is it's constantly changing. So it, it builds in the spring with, with spring flowers, comes to an amazing sort of crescendo in, in May and June, and then ticks over producing flowers throughout the summer until the autumn. Um, the wonderful thing about this garden is the seasonality. So you can come any time of the year and difference between the seasons is quite um, quite apparent um, and of course in the dead of winter you come you've got the beautiful landscape here but of course you've got the the amazing glass house with his, his collections of plants. Sensitive plant here we come. Yes. <laughs> have you met them? Who? Sensitive plant. No, uh, no I don't think I have. No, they never last long with us because they constantly touch and then eventually they die. Yeah they give up. Oh. Yeah. Like being over exercised. Yeah. <laughs> We've now come inside from outside and we are in the, um, the famous Darwin Glass House, um, which is a classic Victorian lean to in the walled garden. And um, there's an insect in here which is being very unwise to do so. Yes, absolutely. He's buzzing around the beautiful uh, white trumpet or Saracenia leucophila, which looks like a stunning flower. Um, any unsuspecting insect would think that that needs pollinating, but they um, they are designed to entice the insects with nectar glands. But this one goes even further and gives the fake appearance of actually being uh, some sort of lily, if you like. Um, I mentioned that nectar. That nectar is is um, baited with a drug which makes the insects sleepy. Effectively, they get drunk and more likely to fall in. Um, so Darwin was really looking at. Um, how plants can manipulate uh, insects for nutrition and so he was the first person to successfully demonstrate that insectivorous as he called them or we call them carnivorous now plants do actually exist and uh, the plant that he was particularly uh, interested in and uh, conducted experiments on um, and we love telling these stories um, to the children because some of them are quite, really quite disgusting um, he had a little bog plant called drosera and it's a plant that's covered in these little tentacles. You can see one there and one there. And um, they're covered in these bright uh, red tentacles and they have um, little glands on the tips of the um, tentacles with globules of uh, plant mucilage, which is effectively plant glue. And so he noticed that insects were sticking to the leaves. So he wanted to conduct experiments to see whether the leaves reacted to certain foodstuffs. So he tried them with lots of different things, um, including cheese and meat, sugar, um, uh, urine, toenails. So again, another example of him using things that he was were readily available and found around the house. And he 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 successfully demonstrated that these plants had a really strong affinity for nitrogen. So you'd think that if you put sugar, sugared water on, it, the the leaf would bend over. But it doesn't because the plant isn't deficient in sugar it's deficient in nitrogen and nitrogen is a key component of all protein uh, molecules and so um or amino acids i should say which form proteins and so he was able to demonstrate that these plants were actually feeding on animals and in the same way um, that he was able to successfully demonstrate that plants were, were in um, uh, manipulating insects for nutrition he was also looking at how plants manipulated insects for sex 
And so you see there's variation on a theme here. The, th the thinking is all very much connected. And so we're on to uh, his, his um, lifelong obsession with orchids. And so we grow many different types of orchids here, both temperate and tropical. And uh, depending on what time of year you come, there will always be something in flower. And, and they are quite spectacular when they do flower. Um, in fact, they're looking now at some of them. Um, for example, you've got Masdevalia in, in, uh, Ignea here. Um, and uh, they di different flowers come into different uh, bloom at the different times of the year, and um, so there's always something to see. Should we go into the tropical section? Yes. Yep. We'd have to excuse the fan. Um, they didn't have electric fans in, in the Darwin's time. Uh, needs must. Um, what they did have in the Darwin's time was uh, this Victorian piping, which is the original piping. Um, and this would have been uh, a hot water heater system and it was fed by coal which would have been in a coal hopper outside so you can imagine the poor gardeners having to um, shovel the coal in there on the coldest of winter nights um, and so um, uh, this would have kept this section of the glass house at above 18 degrees celsius which is essential for the growth of tropical plants and so it was here where he used to grow all of his tropical plants and tropical carnivorous plants as well um, namely things like nepenthes which are um, unlike the, the the pitcher plant that i described initially the saracenia um, these grow other epiphytics they grow up in the trees and they hang from the tree branches and their their pitchers or their jugs hang down and they catch in a very very similar way it's incredible isn't it look at this i mean it's almost like a flower in the way that the are these stamen or what are they? Those are flowers, so that's a peperomia, and people will know peperomia um, if you're interested in your house plants. It's a very popular house plant, um, you can get it in a lot of different places, garden centres, even in IKEA, but um, other, other retailers are available. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, and uh, we also have different climbers as well. We have things like philodendrons here, and also we have Darwin's, um, Darwin's comet orchid. Uh, interesting story. Um, I mentioned Alfred Russell Wallace to you at the very, very beginning. Now, Darwin, um, this is called Darwin's um, orchid, and Greg comes to Squipidale, but it's pollinated by Wallace's sphinx moth. And the story goes that in the 18, uh, in, I think it was in the 1870s, um, Darwin was shown material of this plant, and the, the, the orchid had a very, very long tube and um, people said could you theorize why this would be the case and he uh, said that there must be a moth with a 30 centimeter long tongue to be able to get down into it now five years later alfred russell wallace said um, i've seen a moth with a very long tongue it's a species of xanthopan a, a sphinx moth and it was called xanthopan morganii um, later on, after the turn of the century, after Darwin had died, um, the moth was discovered and it was named Xanthopan morganii subspecies predictor in honour of Wallace's prediction. So um, I don't know why it was in honour of Wallace's prediction rather than Darwin's prediction, um, why it wasn't a joint accolade, um, but all, all I can say is that Wallace was alive at the time and Darwin wasn't, so read that into that what you will. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, and next, we'll go into the climbing section. <clears throat> so, um, this is. I'm missing, sorry. No, no, that's all right. I'm enjoying. I just bumped my head on one of those. 
Oh yes, um, <laughs> yes. So it's where we grow our gourds and our cucumbers as well. But um, he was fascinated with climbing plants and particularly climbing adaptations. And so here you have a selection of plants which um, are, are the ones that he actually studied. For example, the, the selenum there, you've got jasmine, you've got bignonia. And with this plant in particular, the bignonia, he wrote to a colleague uh, in America and he said, why, why does this plant have tendrils which uh, seem to be burrowing into the rope support and um, what sort of habitat does it grow in? Can you explain to me why this, th this would happen? And he said that the, the, um, the plant itself um, grows in, um, in a certain habitat where the, the tendrils cling onto a, sort of a moss-like plant. And so Darwin uh, correctly identified that these tendrils were negatively uh, phototropic, or which, what he called heliotropic. And it was, this, this was an evolutionary adaptation. Yes. So yeah, another, another accolade or another feather in his cap. But um, shall we proceed into the kitchen garden? Yeah. yeah. Actually, um, wow. Yeah, impressive. Mm. And so this is a kitchen garden, so this is herbs and stuff? And this is a kitchen garden, so this had to feed um, to a large extent, it, w it wouldn't have been sufficient to feed all of the family and the staff, but it had to go a long way to feeding all of the family and the staff. And how do we know what sort of things that they were growing here? Um, well, the short answer is um, he didn't make lists of things because it wasn't part of his research. It was part of the running of the garden. But what we do have are the original catalogues that he used. Um, the, those companies, or one company in particular, Cattell & Sons in Westrum, that doesn't exist anymore, not surprisingly. But um, what we can do is to take those catalogues and uh, go to heritage seed companies and source those heritage varieties. And so what you see growing here um, is a fairly good reflection of what they would have been eating. And it's all sorts of things. We've got leeks, we've got cabbages, we've got um, runner beans, we've got asparagus, we've got... Uh, globe artichokes. Globe artichokes, potatoes, uh, we've got kale. Um, and this would have really been in full-time production year-round. What's those purple flowers there that look like giant thistles? So that is, that is globe artichoke. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So They're a bit uh, longer in the tooth than the ones up there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you can see, um, you can see the, the flowers, or the, the spent heads that have gone over. You can see those sort of globe artichokes and possibly recognise it from yeah. the supermarket. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, we're drawing to the end of our time here. And I'm going to do the same thing that Sarah did indoors um, earlier and ask you, um, what would you say is your favourite uh, thing about the gardens or things? Or plant, or flower. Okay, so I've been asked what is my favourite part of the garden or, or thing or flower. And it's almost impossible to ask any gardener what their favourite plant is. It's a very unfair question and I think it changes on a regular basis depending on the season, on what mood I'm in. Um, I think if I was going to say it, on balance, my favourite thing is to sit on a chair on the veranda, which doesn't happen very often, but to sit on a, on a chair on the veranda and look out beyond those beautiful scarlet Virginia creepers, look at the garden that they would have enjoyed and look at the landscape further, further beyond. And it just reminds me that 
yes we are only 16 miles from the centre of London as the crow flies um, we've got great diversity here we've got generally we're generally very peaceful it's quiet um, and it but there's just something very special this is this is like a green oasis on London's doorstep and I said it already but more people should know about us so many people don't know about us and yet I think that we are one of London's biggest hidden gems I would have to agree with you no, thank you uh, for showing us around this magnificent, magnificent. gotta be the word mm. garden exceptional exceptional and downhouse as a whole fascinating a not entirely hidden gem but one that everyone should go to really Absolutely. well thank you for having me thank you for having us thank you for coming here and highlighting this uh, amazing place amazingly beautiful place and it's uh, uh, an exceptional place uh, where scientific scientific history was 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 made and you can and, still see it in action and you can see it in action all around you mm. yeah